Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Uh, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this church. God, would you speak through Ryan? Would your spirit just illuminate your word for us this morning? Uh, we thank you for everything. We love you. For all this in your son's name. Amen. We are, we are entering into a series where we are going to be walking through the book of Ruth over the next seven weeks. And it's, it's a book of the Bible in the Old Testament. We're going to be doing work there. So, so if you haven't read it before, or if you have read it, refamiliarize yourself with it. And, and dig into it. And, and what, we're, what we're intending to do with this series is to wrestle with it to such a degree that God blesses us through His Word. Every, every story has an arc to it, a, a plot to it. And you've heard the, the phrase before, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Yet day in and day out, this is exactly what, what we do when we pull a person and their story out of the context, out of their story, out of their family. And I'm just as guilty as, as every single one of you in doing that. I get impatient with, with people and I, I fail to take the time to get to know them to the degree to where I can understand them a little bit more fully. And so one of the things we're wanting to do today, especially as we set up this, this journey through the book of Ruth, is to do some due diligence in how we look at the context of this. Because this story is a story of redemption. It's this idea that we are all a part of something so much bigger than us. And all of our stories, whether we realize it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, fit into some bigger narrative, some bigger story. And there's, there's probably not a better example in such a concise way to see this uh, other than the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, what it does is it invites us into a family. Um, and if your family is anything like mine, so there are some conversations we have and we just say, um, that's a personal conversation there, right? Well, what the book of Ruth does is it invites us into the personal level. It invites us into the area uh, of life that you don't put on a resume or a social media post. You know what I'm saying? It invites us into those places, and then it invites us to ask this question, what would it look like if God showed up there? What would it look like for God to show up in that area of your life, in that part of your story? When you're at your worst, when you're at your best, what's it look like when God shows up there? I recently had the opportunity to officiate a wedding a couple weeks ago 
um, of a couple people um, that are over at Perimeter Churches, the church that sent us out. And um, the, the, the lady that was getting married, her husband had tragically died of brain cancer some years before, and she was a widow, and, and the man that was uh, uh, getting married to her uh, had his own set of circumstances. He came to faith later in life, and, and because of that, his, his family situation was a bit complicated, too. And as I was officiating uh, the wedding, I preached a sermon because, you know, that's what you do when somebody gives you a mic, you preach. And so in, in the sermon that I was preaching, a homily, if you will, um, <clears throat> I mentioned this idea that this was a celebration of two broken people um, not being whole by each other, but being made whole by God. And somebody came up to me after the ceremony and they said, you know, uh, you know some, of, some of the brokenness is obvious, some of it's not in these two, but what you said really impacted me because I didn't think about how brokenness affects us. And, and that's really the reality of what we get to see in the book of Ruth is that, uh, you know, we tend to think, we tend to think about our relationship uh, with God in, in, this, in, the, in this way where, where tragedy and the consequences of sin don't fit into the picture. But what the book of Ruth shows us is that God's providence is all over our story. And so we're going to dig in that, into that today. So if you've got a Bible, let's, let's get back into Ruth 1 that we read a few minutes Ago and, and, and the big idea of where I want to go today is this, that God's covenant love is a reminder that he's teaching us to love through tragedy. That, that God is at work in the darkest moments of our lives. And sometimes we've got to cling to him in the darkness, and that's where he does the deepest work in us. And so let's, let's look at point number one here, that just the context of the story. If you're anything like me, you, you look at a, a verse like Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and you just kind of... You just kind of bulldoze your way through it. You plow through that verse, not realizing how much is there. So let me read it again for you, and we're going we're gonna to pick it apart a bit here. Ruth uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So much here. So when we think about this idea of covenant, let me, let me catch you up to speed a little bit here. So God has been in covenant with his people since, since he made them. He makes us, and he's been coming to us ever since we abandoned his rule in our hearts. Uh, his covenant describes our relationship with him, that he'll be our God and we'll be his people. Now, a covenant is an agreement between two people, two parties. And, and a covenant, our covenant with God says this, if you obey my commands, then you'll live. Well, you know how the story goes. That lasts for about three chapters, right? Doesn't last very long. So what's the rest of the Bible about? The rest of the Bible is about God's pursuit of his people to make them his own. And you and I fit into that story. God's pursuit of you and pursuit of me. Some of you don't know why you're here this morning. A neighbor invited you and you showed up. A family member invited you and you showed up. You just happened to wander in here this morning. And I'm telling you that it's on purpose because God wants to show you his pursuit of you the same way that he does through all of the Bible. And so the way that God does this in the, in the Older Testament is that it is leading up to looking toward this Messiah, Jesus. And so when he says uh, that... Um, in the days when the judges ruled, he's describing a trajectory, a context, a relationship that has happened. And, 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 and 
what we see here is that God's covenant intensifies with us. In Genesis chapter 3, the, um, God is, is doling out, the, the, dishing out the consequences of sin to all three parties involved. There was there's Adam, and he said, hey, work is going to be really hard for you. It's not going to be easy. There was Eve. He said, listen, childbirth is going to be painful. It's going to be difficult, and your desire is going to be for your husband. It's going to be to have his role in, in, in the relationship, to be, to be the head over your husband. And then to the enemy, he, he, he cursed him, and he, and, he, and he basically said, hey, you know, there's going to be someone that's going to come after these two. He's going to be a descendant of these two. And he, even though you're going to strike his heel, he is going to crush your head. He is going to deliver a blow to your life, Satan, that is so tragic and so lethal that you will not sustain it. You will not, you will not be able to get through this. That's the promise that he gives in Genesis 3.15. It's the first glimpse of the gospel that we get. And from Genesis 3.15, we see this story that's building throughout the whole Bible of that one that will come and crush the enemy. Now, the way that he rules is that he rules through a people, uh, Israel, and they come from Abraham and his descendants. And, and the story goes like this, that, that, uh, that they, didn't, they didn't obey and they didn't listen to this covenant that God made with Abraham and the people and the descendants that would follow him. And so um, the way that we see this happening is that uh, one of the ways that God leads his people out of, uh, out of destruction prior to sending Jesus is he ruled them through judges. Now, these were individuals called and ordained by God to represent his purposes to a rebellious people in the darkest hour of their existence. Listen to this. Judges uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Now, to give you a bit of context here, Moses has led God's people out of slavery in Egypt to the threshold of the promised land. They can see it. God says, you can't go in. I'm going to send Joshua into the promised land with Israel. And, um, and so, so during this time, God raised up Joshua to conquer and to lead God's people into the land. And Judges 2.10 tells, tells us this. And there arose another generation after them, the ones that entered into the promised land, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Genesis or Judges 2.16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. Church, we're always just one generation away from forgetting the promise of God. Do you know that? That's why what we did this morning and what we will continue to do with our young people is one of the most important things that we can give to the world. Is, is a generation of young people that believe in the real and resurrected Jesus and want to do something about that in this world and want to, want to pro proclaim his fame throughout all the world. The judges ruled in this time when Israel was so rebellious and they, they didn't like what the judges had to say. Uh, but this season that, that God ruled through the judges was like this, this hidden grace. Um, You've heard it said before that sometimes there are lessons that you learn in life that you can only learn through the school of hard knocks, right? You've heard that before? Some of your parents told you that, and they say, you'll thank me later, those kinds of things. Well, this is kind of the case for Israel. The time of the judges, the, the age of the judges was where they learned by the school of hard knocks. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't a time that Israel would look back on and say, man, remember the time of the judges? That was so cool. 
No, they wouldn't say that. It was a dark time. And so this book comes at one of the darkest times in the history of God's people, the history of us, one of the darkest seasons. Well, not only that, the Scriptures say that what, not only was it a dark time in history, it was a dark time in, the, in that moment in the city of Bethlehem because there was a famine. There was a famine that occurred. So the, the, this family is in Bethlehem. Elimelech, Naomi, uh, Malon, and, um, and the other guy. <laughs> Whatever his name is. He dies. I mean, you know, it, it happens really quick. I'm rolling here. Okay, that's good. All right, let's recover. So this famine's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, uh, the, the name of Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. So what you have going on in Bethlehem is you have the house of bread that is experiencing a famine. There's no bread to be found in the house of bread where God's people have been called by the promise of God. Now, famines are God's way of bringing His people back into submission to His rule in their hearts. It's, it's similar to the reason why, the, why we as Christians fast. We fast, we withhold food or other things from our lives to, to bring back our hearts under the rule and submission of Christ in our lives. That's why we do it. So, so a famine was an, was an involuntary way that God would do that, a hidden grace, another one of those. So there's a physical famine in the lives of God's people because there's a spiritual famine in their hearts. It's key that we realize this. So God's people have turned their back on His promises and His ways, and they're feeling the consequences of this. There are people dying, and Naomi's husband, Elimelech, is left with a decision. Do I stay or do I go? Do I go the 50 miles over east to Moab where, there, where I hear there's bread? Do I just get out of it? Do I just bail on this place? Bail on this promise that God brought us into and go over there where I hear that there's bread. This would be what we call looking for greener grass. So famine in the Bible occurs because of judgment, and judgment is something that we think we will all avoid for the most part. We live, church, in general, as humanity, we live like God doesn't see us, don't we? We live like the lights are never going to come on in our hearts, don't we? Well, this day and age in the history of God's people, when the famine occurred in the time of the judges, was God's way of saying, hey, guess what? I know what's going on in your heart. I know what's going on in your life, and I don't like it. Because your hearts are so far from me, the only thing that will ever give you life, and undo the curse that happened in Genesis 3. And the Bible constantly is reminding us that there will be a day when the lights come on. And so I don't know what that means for you today. Judgment for God's people is a good thing because we finally get judged righteous when we believe in Jesus. The, the lie that we are not worthy is finally uprooted once and for all when Jesus returns because he says you are worthy. But in light of that, we got to live in such a way that the lights will come on, that God knows the intentions of our hearts. Now, for Elimelech here, he makes this decision to, to rip his family not only out of Bethlehem. Now, we're tempted to look at this from our Western eyes and say, oh, of course we would go over there. There's bread over there. Why wouldn't we go over there? For Elimelech and his family in this day, it was, it was, it was like ripping them out of the only church on the face of the planet, okay? So you and your family are part of this church. It's the only one that exists. And you say... I hear there's bread over there. Let's leave the church and go get bread. That, that's what it would be like 
in this day. But the question is, has he counted the, the cost of the decision that he's about ready to make? And what is he going to do about it? So chances are he didn't really count the cost because what we see is that he leads his family into the land of Moab. Now, Moab, uh, who, who are the Moabites? You've probably heard about them if you've been in the church. Uh, <clears throat> the history of God's people is about to take even a darker turn. Not in, it's not just in the land of the judges, the time of the judges. It's not just in a time of famine in the history of God's people, but to the land of Moab. Now, Moab is, is, has a compound meaning here. Mo meaning who, Ab meaning father. So he's taking them out of the house of bread into the land of who's your daddy, basically, right? Now, who are the Moabites? Well, if you, if you do a cursory reading of Genesis chapter 19 you'll see that there's this, this guy named Lot. Now, Lot was Abraham's nephew. This promise was given to Abraham and his nephew, and they get to this place, uh, this, this juncture in the road where they can't be in the same land together because God has blessed them so much. They have, they have so many banks with hair on them. That's what we call cattle. Um, they, they, have so much, they have so much livestock. They have so much wealth that they can't be in the same place because the land can't sustain all of their wealth. God has blessed their lives tremendously. And so they, they separate. Now, what happens with Lot here is he goes down this road of, of, of ending up in the, 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 city, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and there, are these, there are these pretty despicable cities that God bring, rains down his judgment on. And, and as they're walking out of the city, I don't have time to get into all the details. As they're walking out of the city, Lot's wife, um, God has promised, hey, don't look back at these cities. I'm going to destroy them. And, and Lot's wife kind of looks back as they're leaving the city. And she turns into a pillar of salt, like right on the spot. And it wasn't because she just kind of accidentally tripped and looked. It was because she longed for what that city represented. She longed for life apart from God. And, and what happened that day, it really scared Lot. It really shook him up. So he and his two daughters, they, they go in, into the wilderness, into the mountains to get away from everyone because uh, they're afraid. Uh, so he and his two girls are in, in the mountains, and, 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 uh, and they're, they're, they're fearful of their lives. They're not following God's will. They're running uh, and his two girls are thinking one night after dad's asleep, uh, how are we going to make it after dad dies? There's only three of us here, and there's no dudes. What are we going to do? And so they end up deceiving their father into this uh, very gross incestual act, and one of these sons is named Moab. And his descendants are the Moabites. So to come back to the story here, Elimelech, Naomi, and the boys leave the house of bread for the land of who's your daddy. And it's a bigger statement than just a job promotion. It's, you know, a lot of times I think about this and, and I think we tend to think about, oh, you know, it was just a circumstantial thing. He just ended up over there because he wanted to provide for his family. What a noble guy. That's not what was going on here. It was unbelief why he left God's people that day. He found himself isolated with the hope that a different set of circumstances might change their lives. And for Elimelech, it was the abandonment and the promise of God that day. Church, a different set of circumstances will never live up to the promise that it makes in your heart. It never will. And we as a people of God must choose to starve living in the will of God than to take the bread of the enemy. Now, I don't know what that means for you today. 
I don't want to project too much on you, but there is this drive and temptation inside of us to leave what we know to be true about God and to run for other things. If there's one thing that we see about the history of God's people is that we were born running, running away from God. And we're all tempted to do it in different ways. And in this story of Ruth right here, we see this. Can you relate to these circumstances? Do you find yourself in a season of of just inner turmoil where you don't really know what life is about? You don't really, you can't make sense out of what's happening. And you don't really feel or want to be near to God. You just keep showing up to things where you think God might bless you and you might feel His presence, but you find yourself empty. Are you in that season? Are you there? Are you tempted to turn away from the Lord and chase greener grass this morning? Because God is sovereign, church. We, we, can, we can trust Him in the time of the judges. We, we can trust Him during the famine. We, we can trust Him with our lives. Because Moab is the land of those who do not know their father. In church, we know who our father is. We know that He is a good father that has sent the best gift that He can to secure us as His people forever. So the question you got to ask yourself today is, do I know who my daddy is? Really? I mean, do I know who my father is? Do I know and believe that God is my father? And when you know that, it doesn't matter the narrative that your circumstances will tell you. You can stand strong through it by faith. Secondly, let's turn on and look at the, the characters in the story. We've mentioned them a little bit here. I'm teaching a little bit more this week just to give us a big context. Let me read just as a refresher, verses 2 through 5 here. The name of the man, starting in verse 2 here, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, ah, and here's the sons, Malon and Chilion. How could I forget Chilion? And they were uh, uh, Ephrathites in Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons, but these took Moabite wives. And the name of the one was Orpah, and the, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, but both uh, Malon and Chilion died, so that, the women, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So let me just ask you the, the, this question. What, what's in a name? I mean, because here's the deal. Just like you and I, Naomi probably had an idea about what was going to happen in her life and how it was going to unfold. She had a blueprint about what life was supposed to look like she thought she was going to get married she thought she was going to have kids she thought that she was going to honor God with her life but just like you and I life didn't go exactly as she had planned her Cinderella her Cinderella tale seemed to be headed for an alternate ending and and I think we can all relate to this we see the imagery here for us so what's in the name who's Elimelech what does his name mean? This, at this time in the history of God's people, names really had a deep and meaningful purpose. When you name someone, you were in a sense giving them an identity. Elimelech. Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi is pleasant. So my God is king and pleasant get married in the city of the house of bread. And they have sons there that for some reason they name <laughs> Malon, which means sick, and Chilion, which means dying. So I don't know what 
led them to make those types of decisions for names. I wouldn't recommend it for those of you that want kids. I mean, this is not, these aren't really great names, if I, if I could say. But they named them this. So here it is. My God is King is now dead. The widow Pleasant has now also buried her sons sick and dying. And now we have an Israelite woman in a foreign land and two young Moabite daughter-in-laws trying to see what's next in life. Do you think they drew this up in the playbook of how they thought their life was going to go? No. No, these characters and their stories are thick and rich and complicated and complex. When Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion wandered eastward 50 miles, you think they had any idea what the next 10 years would hold? I almost picture it like they see their circumstances and they think about the lack of bread and, and God's judgment against them and they hear that there's a better way to live maybe if they just go 50 miles east of here. And they say, you know, it'd be kind of like this. Hey, let's just go to Charlotte for a quick promotion. I'll do my two years there. We'll get back. We'll get the bigger house. The kids can go to that private school we've been wanting them to go to and life will be better. If we just rip them out for a little bit, come back, everything will be fine. It'd be a similar narrative for us. But what they find is 10 years later, the three men are dead and the three women are, are left there trying to figure out what's next. And the, 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 the mother of them, Naomi, is left with, without, a, without a career of vocation. I mean, any of those types of things in this day. And it's, it's pretty much destitute without God's help. We never expect tragedy to happen to us, do we? We see it happen and we think, man, that's really bad. When, it, when it's someone that, you know, maybe a friend of ours or at a distance and we, and we think, wow, that's, I can't believe that's happening. I, I don't see how that could happen. We never expect to happen, it to happen to us until it does. So what do we do when it does happen to us? Where is God in the middle of it? We enjoy so much grace that we don't realize just how much God's holding our life together. We think that somehow it's us. And what we, what we see in these moments of despair and confusion is that it has always been God holding our lives together. It's never been us. And so I want to introduce you, maybe some of you, and remind others of you to, to a, a theological truth that will help guide the way that you see your circumstances in life. It's called providence. Now, providence is the tension of two truths that we typically want to pit against each other. We typically want to say that these two truths, that there's no way that these two truths can live in tension with each other. Either one is true and the other is false, or the other is true and, you know, and false. And so that's the way that we typically look at it. Now, now these, the story of these characters and the story of your own life is a tale of providence, whether you see it yet or not. And the two truths that have to live in tension for us as God's people are this truth about goodness and this truth about sovereignty. Let me say it again. It's the, the, the two truths that we've got to hold in tension are God's goodness and His sovereign control. So let me just quickly define the two as we, as we keep moving forward here. Goodness. What does goodness mean? Goodness means that He, God, is always and only doing what is good. That there is nothing that God is doing that is not good. There is nothing that He is that is not good. Okay? 
Now, now here's the thing, that we can get on with this truth, we can get along with this truth when our, when our circumstances dictate this narrative to us, can't we? God is good all the time, all the time God is good. I'm not making fun of that statement, but it's funny how people only say that when things are going their way, right? What would it look like to have a theology that enables you to say that even when you're situation and your circumstances are telling you a different narrative that only happens when you couple it with God's sovereignty which says this that that he God governs and preserves all things meaning that that he <clears throat> that he is in control of all things and all things have to come through him before they get to us and that He sustains all things. That there's, there's nothing in the world that is sustained without God. When you hold those two truths together, you get this idea of providence. Now, let's quickly look at uh, Psalm 34, 8. The, scriptures, the psalmist writes this. I think it's David. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, now this, is an easy, this is an easy Scripture to recite when our circumstances are telling us uh, the right kind of story. But, but there's something about our experience that helps us see the Lord's goodness. Now, the thing that we need to grow in as God's people is, is the way to see the goodness of God in every experience. And that only happens through looking at the sovereignty of God. So let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 3. Now here's what the book of Hebrews tells us about Jesus' role in the sustaining and preserving and governing of all things in this world. Here's what it says. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint. He's the same thing. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Have you ever noticed in the scriptures that God does things through his word? He speaks, he speaks light into the darkness through His Word. He raises the dead through His Word. God's Word has power and has far more power than our Word. He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. After making purifications for sin, Jesus, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So God in His, in His, in His, in His providence has permitted men to sin. This is, this is what confuses us about the providence of God, doesn't it? God, why have you permitted men to sin? How can this circumstance and this situation be a part of your plan? And it's quite a mystery, isn't it? But the lie that we're tempted to believe is that when that happens, that God is no longer good, we're tempted to believe that. It is not truth. The truth is that these two are always held in tension with one another, no matter the narrative that your, that your situation or your circumstances are trying to tell you. Now, I find it interesting that what God does in, in the midst of letting men sin is that he, uh, he directs the worst of situations toward ends beyond our intentions. He's able to take things that we intend for evil, as Joseph would say, well, Moses would write about Joseph saying, he said, what you meant for evil, God used for good. He's able to transform situations that we make with very poor intentions and turn them into redemptive realities for our story. 
for our life, for our comfort. He has the power to do that. Paul would say it in a different way. He says in Romans 8.28, For God works all things. Let me say that again. For God works all things. Not some things. Not most things. Not a couple things. God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God has one purpose for your life. And it is to work everything in your life for your good and His glory. That's exactly what He's doing. That's what the Scriptures tell us, and that's what we have to lean on every single day of our lives. That God is always and only working good things into our lives. Even though sin is trying to work a different thing into your heart, it will not have its way with a child of God. Amen? This is what He does. This is what He does. This is why Jesus said, it is finished. Scriptures say in Hebrews 1.3 that He set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now the only time you sit down is when your work is finished, right? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, you know, trick question, where's Jesus? Anybody want to ask you that? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's where he's at. And what, what is he doing there? He's interceding for us because he's finished his work. This is why Jesus would say before he left the earth, it is finished. What's finished? The work to secure God's people eternally to our Father in heaven is finished. The work is finished. The work now on our part is faith, believing in the work that Jesus has done and that it's actually finished. And the way that we do that is we understand the providence of God. And we remind each other of the providence of God, not in a trite and cute way, but in a deep and real way. That anything that happened to you, brother, anything that happened to you, sister, in your life had to pass through the hands of a loving Father in heaven before it got to you. And that changes everything about how you view your life. Lastly, let's look at God's covenant-keeping love from Ruth 1, 6-9. Back into the story here. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, this is Naomi, the widow, they're all widows, to return from the country of Moab, she's leaving the country of who's your daddy, you know, with all of that Moabite history. For she heard in the fields of Moab, which she was gleaning, probably trying to get some food, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, where were his people? Well, they were back in Israel, in the house of bread, in Bethlehem, in the city surrounding. She heard that God was at work back in Israel, and there might be a chance, there might be a spot for her to go back home. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, where Bethlehem was. But Naomi, she turns and she says to her daughters-in-law, go return each one of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now, I've got you on a cliffhanger this week. If you've read the book, you know how it goes. There's a reason why the book is called Ruth and not Naomi. But for sake of argument about believing in the love of God, even though we're sinners, I want to leave us here today in this. Now, <clears throat> we all have this need to remember God's covenantal love. So somewhere in the midst of Naomi's deep tragedy because of her unbelief, her husband's unbelief, her son's unbelief, 
All of their unbelief, the fact that they believed that God couldn't provide for them even though there was a famine, so they left him, they abandoned him, they ran for the greener grass. In the middle of all of this, there remained in her heart and in her mind this reality that there could be a chance that maybe I could someday, if things work out right, come home. And so, that was alive in her, even though she was in the land of Moab. She was in a foreign land. There remained her in her some seeds of a truth that maybe I could come home. And that somehow, some way, God could make sense of all of this. This didn't mean she wasn't hurt. <laughs> this doesn't mean that she wasn't even bitter. In fact, she tells the girls in, later in Ruth chapter 1, hey, I know that my name is pleasant, but why don't you just call me Mara, which means bitter. Why don't you just call me that instead? Because that's the way I feel. But there was this glimmer of hope, not because of her circumstances or her ability to make it happen for herself, but because of God. Naomi had heard that there may be, again, bread in the house of God, meaning that God's presence had not finally and fully left his people, even though he lifted his hand for a season. That he was still there, he was still with them, that they were still loved by him. So she says to Orpah and Ruth, girls, go back home to mom. You've got a better chance making it if you just go back home and stay in Moab, all right? Because I'm going back to the God of Israel. I'm going back home. Is this you this morning? Have you wandered away from your home and God? Have you wandered away from faith in the promises of God for your life? Have you wandered to a different set of Moabite ethics? Do you have a different rule and reign that you live under, a different power that you live under now? Because if that is you, and we all struggle with this to some degree, there's a promise that we need to cling to, that we can always come back home. If there's one thing that the Scriptures tell us about running people is that God wants us to come home. In, in Isaiah 1, uh, verse 18, he tells us reality of what it's like to come home, and they're in exile at this time, and he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Are you looking for a reset this morning, a new start, a fresh start? Do you want to come home because today is the day, not tomorrow, not next year, not after the kids get out of college, not after things get together in your marriage, not after whatever set of circumstances or job opportunities come your way or whatever set of relationships get right. No, today is the day that you can come home because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. If there's anything that Ruth 1 teaches us is that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Do you want to end up 10 years in the land of the dead when you could have walked back to Bethlehem? Because that's the invitation to us today. Is your heart wandering from God? What would it look like for you to surrender and say, God, I just want to come home? Now, what Naomi does with these two girls, she offers two blessings to them that I just want to speak briefly of. Now, you can only bless someone if you yourself have been blessed by God. You yourself have been um, seen favorably in His sight because of His work and enjoy His presence in your life. That's a, maybe a, a, a spitball definition of blessing. <laughs> you see yourself as someone that has favor in God's sight because He's found favor in you. She says this to, to Ruth and to, and to Orpah. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Now, 
That, that phrase, deal kindly, doesn't really do the trick for us. It, it doesn't mean what she says. Because the word that she uses for deal kindly is this word, has said, which is this, it's this love that, 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 that the English language doesn't quite have the words for. It's, 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 it's different than, than, than just self-sacrificing love. It's more like loyal love. Love that sticks with you no matter what. Love that doesn't leave. So she says to them, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt kindly. You've, you've loved loyally to the dead. To those guys that came in here as, as, as exiles, or as, as those that have, that have walked out on God and walked in on your life. You've had to deal with all that pain of their sin. It wasn't your fault. You've had to deal with all that. And you've also dealt kindly with me. You've, you've loved loyally to me. It's, 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 it's a love that lingers beyond feelings. You know what I'm talking about? It's committed love that endures tragedy and turns ashes into beauty because it sticks around even when things are really rough. Church, this is what God has done for us. In the middle of the tragedy of our mess that sin has created, He has sent Jesus and because of his loyalty to finish what he started in creation, to bring us home to the Father, he stayed. He said, it's, it's, it's how we could describe the cross. When Jesus stayed, when it would have been easier to go and say, peace out, guys. He didn't say that. He said, I'm going to stay even though this, this story that's going to come out of this is going to be really bad for me for a season. And he stays in our lives even when we're wandering off in the land of Moab. Even when we're chasing other gods, other opportunities, other desires, and we're straying from our true love in Him. The cross, here's what the cross shows us, is that death is at the center of love. Now we think that there's no way that death can be revealed in love, but there is some love that only death can reveal. Do you know what I'm talking about? Frederick Nietzsche, who was a German philosopher, said this, only where graves are is there resurrection. Only where graves are is the resurrection. So for us, the only way that we get life is through death. It's through Jesus' death. It's through our death. And sometimes that death means that we trust God in the darkness. We trust Him when life is really hard and tragedy has struck us in more ways than one. We hold on to Him in the darkness. In this world, the only life we find is through death. And the only love that we can give is through our death to self. That's what, that's what the Scriptures teach us about love. Now, she also says this. She leaves them with this promise. She says, not only, like, may God, because I'm, I'm able to, to bless you because God has blessed me, so I want to share my God with you even though I'm in Moab right now. Because I, I have this feeling and this knowledge that He's still here, that He's still with me even in Moab. She blesses them with that. But she also blesses the, them with this, this idea of rest. She says, may the Lord give you rest. You know, may the Lord give you rest as you, as you live as those who are interested in the God of Israel still in the land of Moab. May God give you rest. May God give you another husband that will be able to care for you and, 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 and treat you well and lead you to a better life than the one that my boys have. And this blessing that she offers to, to the two means more than just a day off work. They didn't need a day off work. They needed new lives. Rest in this sense is a state of being and a state of place. It's related to the story of Noah and the ark. That's where we first see this word in the Hebrew. Is that the ark would somehow be 
a place of rest in the hearts of God's people. And, and you look forward, and the ark really is pointing to Jesus, that only when we are hidden in Him are we safe from our surroundings. Are we safe from God's judgment? The only way that you and I endure the judgment of God against sin is through hiding ourselves in Jesus. That's what rest is. Rest is not just a vacation to the Bahamas, although that could give you rest, and maybe that will give some of you rest this year. But rest is about hiding ourselves and sinking ourselves deep into the heart of God that ultimately protects us from the worst thing in the world, which is death. That's the rest that God wants to give to us. So Naomi blesses these two with a love uh, that doesn't come from her, but it comes from eternity past because she knows the God of Israel even though she's in a foreign land. Now, this morning, it doesn't matter how far you've ran. It doesn't matter how much like Elimelech and Naomi and the boys that I can't pronounce their names have, have been, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how far you've run. It doesn't matter how long you've been running. There's only one thing that matters. Will you come home? Will you come home to your Father in heaven who has extended an invitation to you to make your life whole through faith in Jesus? Will you come home? Will you come home? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this story of beauty in the, in the midst of tragedy and, and the hope that that gives us about our own stories. Or will we come home? That's the question. And the Scriptures tell story after story of runaway son after runaway daughter. And some of them come home. Some of them don't. Lord, will we be the people that come home to the promises of God? Will we be the people that point others toward the way home? Would you make our lives roadmaps to the love of a sovereign God that has this long-lasting love it stays. So thank you for meeting us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.